0: This is Aspire, Arch Street Public Radio, a content-driven platform broadcasting interviews from our Innovate, Innovate Media, Innovate CSR, and Innovate Under 30 podcast series. Aspire gives public voice to socially conscious and forward-thinking leaders within the nonprofit and for-profit sectors, academia, journalism, and social entrepreneurship.
1: Today is March 16, 2012, and I'd like to welcome Lennon Flowers, a key member of Ashoka's team in their Empathy Initiative. Lennon first joined Ashoka in 2007, where she worked with Ashoka's global search and selection process, and also served as part of the founding team for Ashoka U, working directly with the universities who are involved in that project as part of the project's Changemaker Campus Initiative. And Lennon comes to Ashoka most recently from GoodCore, where she teamed up with leading brands to advance social impact causes, and some of those platforms included the Pepsi Refresh Project, ABC's Global Health Campaign, Be the Change, Save a Life, and also partnerships involving the Gates Foundation. And Lennon, can I just say, I'm so excited to talk to you today. You're one of my favorite people to talk with because you always seem to have this wonderful energy, warmth and positivity. And in my experience, when you start with that, there's almost nothing that you can't get done. (laughs) Well,
2: I think this is going to be a lot of fun and I can certainly um, note that uh, that feeling is mutual. So this should be great.
1: Terrific. Well, today we're going to try to offer listeners an introduction to Ashoka's Empathy Initiative, and there are some of us out there who do a lot better hearing someone talk about a subject than we do reading it, so for all of you auditory learners out there, this is for you, and I'd like to begin at the beginning. Can you start by giving us a sense of what does Ashoka mean by empathy, and why does it matter?
2: Absolutely. Um, so when, when Ashoka talks about empathy, it's, um, you know, as, as kind of anyone would understand it, the kind of common off the streets um, notion that it's the ability to step into somebody else's shoes. Um, but when we when we look at that, we actually mean um, we, we'd like to unpack it a little bit because to us it's a lot more than just that. Um, it's really about the ability to collaborate. It's about the ability to work hand-in-hand hand with another person on a team. It's about the ability to solve problems um, and resolve conflicts. It's about the ability to align interest. Um, And all of these kind of skills um, that we've identified as being absolutely critical to what it is to be a change maker, really emerged from lessons from our fellowship. Um, So we looked, you know, at kind of the entire scope of Ashoka Fellows around the world, um, beginning with those in education, but not just limited to them, and recognized that certainly in education and those working with young people, again and again and again, we found these patterns that Fellows were... Um, you know, cultivating this, the common set of skills in their students, you know, they were changing entire education institutions so that the culture reflected an ability to listen, um, so that people were meeting each other on a real kind of even playing field, Um, so that, you know, the entire kind of school system was incentivizing empathy, was um, really making this kind of core to who they were um, and what they do but also something that was modeled across the institution and something that was um, you know, reflected back and expected um, in terms of you know, what a person's deliverables were. Um, and then we looked beyond just those fellows working in education and we realized that core to what it is to be a social entrepreneur in this day and age is a person um, you know, approaching an issue in the environment. Not um, raising their fists and protesting the other, but figuring out how do we align uh, with, you know, the people on the other side of the table, the people who've never made it to the table, those in kind of the business world, the, the former enemies, and how do we build kind of a coalition around this? So we took a step back and, and said, huh, there's, there's got to be something here. So we're um, now trying to figure out what that something is um, and how we, how we
1: practice it. So terrific. It's just fascinating listening to you talk about that. I uh, even I feel like you've touched on a lot of the themes in my own work, and it's interesting that I think what I hear you saying is that a lot of the way Ashoka developed this idea about empathy was actually in dialogue with its own fellows around the world. So that gives it a real contextual, practical focus that perhaps some other institutions wouldn't be able to bring to it.
2: Yeah, yeah, no, this is all, all of this is, um, fortunately for us, not made up. And we've got 3000 examples across our fellowship, uh, where this is being put into action. And I think that's given us kind of a lens into really reflecting back, okay, you know, this is a changing time. It's a time in which just the ability to, you know, spout off memorized knowledge and facts is no longer particularly relevant because new knowledge is being created every day. And so, as we look at what success means in the future, it really is about the ability to be a change maker and to take initiative and to and kind of dissect what a pro- what's going on underneath that problem and how do you become an agent in creating the solution? And for us, um, and certainly for our fellows, empathy is absolutely foundational to that.
1: Can you give us a little bit of historical perspective? How long has Ashoka been focused on this empathy initiative? Is there a point in time that is clear where it starts? Or when does it emerge in Ashoka's work as part of the story? Sure.
2: Um, I think... Bill Drayton, our, our founder and CEO, has probably been talking about empathy for the last 30 years. Um, so to that extent, um, and I think as we look at you know, what are the kind of criteria that we've used for selection of our fellows um, you know, and their ethical standing and their ability to really listen effectively and understand a problem from you know, the perspective of the people living it, And often they are the people that have lived the problem. Um, Empathy has been kind of a powerful theme in our work um, from from its inception. Um, As far as kind of our actual focused effort uh, to really change the conversation, um, we've been kind of beginning to toy with this, I'd say, for the last four or five years um, in more thoughtful conversation uh, within the organization as we begin to to kind of shift um, Ashoka's the real identity and, and platform um, to being one that serves not only individual social entrepreneurs, um, but really explores how do we work together? You know, it's not just 3000 separate ideas in the world. It's patterns of ideas. And, and Ashoka is kind of this platform for what we're calling collaborative entrepreneurship. So as we began to kind of shift our focus in that way, empathy um, was pretty much immediately. The place that it made sense to start because we have seen such incredible both evidence, you know, that this is important from the perspective of our fellowship, but also just as importantly, we've seen a lot of energy um, from, you know, among our fellows, but also journalists and others within kind of the Ashoka network. So um, we've been kind of working in a a very focused way together um, over the course of the last year um, but this has been something that's kind of been in the making for a long time.
1: That's, that's very helpful. This is what I've heard Bill talk about as Ashoka 2.0, this sort of shift to really thinking about how do you marshal and collaborate all the work of these people in so many different places around the world. Is it fair to say that empathy is really one of the first emergent themes in that 2.0 work?
2: yeah I think that's that's definitely fair to say and um, certainly you know this is the same kind of process uh, that we're hoping to apply to a wide variety of issue areas and we've already begun kind of similar undertakings in health in the environment um, in building bridges to the business and the social worlds um, but empathy is is a place that we we're seeing a lot of um, a lot of energy and a lot of promise at the
1: moment terrific. One of the things that I've heard Bill say a number of times, and I've heard other people in Ashoka say this, is they talk about tipping the system. And really, it seems like that's part of the vision for the initiative that we get there. We get to a point where we have a system transformation. Can you tell us more about that? What does success look like when the world tips? And how does the empathy empathy team see that happening?
2: Yeah. um, Well, so it's an interesting question. I mean, we're not at all attempting to kind of spread a single curriculum or a new program um, from school to school to school. What we want to do is to really build up demand um, that A, empathy matters, and B, kind of beginning with a look at our fellows, but also at leading schools that are doing this day in and day out, here's how you do it, you know, and I think you find that nobody is particularly opposed to empathy. Um, But we do have a long way to go, I think, in our society um, before we recognize that this is more than just a nice to have, you know, that this is really critical for learning. And in fact, um, as many principals have pointed out to us, this is the fundamental purpose of education. So what we're trying to do now is to work um, with the media, to work with parents groups, to work with leading educators and uh, leading schools, again, to, to uh, establish a new set of models for how this is done. Um, but also to just change the conversation, to get people really thinking about empathy in a way you know, that's more than just kind of a slogan written on a classroom board Um, or a character trait, that this is a real skill and that if you want your child to be successful in the world, it's a skill that you have to intentionally develop. And um, as we all know with empathy, it's not something that can be done just by lecturing your child on it or standing at the front of a classroom and giving the empathy lecture. Uh, As a teacher, it is something that has to be truly modeled um, and lived by the adults in the room as well, which is why we begin to talk about culture. But I think that kind of... um, and for that reason, it begs, um, you know, a fairly significant change in terms of um, how all of us treat each other, you know, and the skills that we're, we're working to cultivate in adults and, and not just children alone.
1: One of the things that really resonates with me as I hear you talk about that is just the vision of People as being part of the solution that their engagement and changing the way they think is part of what the initiative is trying to do. So as you said, it's not simply just one program or one idea or one problem, but really a transformation and an evolution in consciousness is really what what the objective is.
2: Yeah, I I mean, in simple terms, our objective is a world in which every child masters empathy. But I think, um, you know, to that point, what we absolutely need to be able to get there is that kind of transformation in consciousness so that people are recognizing this so that it's a part, you know, automatically of what principals kind of establish as their, their objectives for schools, school so that parents are coming to their school districts and pushing for this, you know, so that this is kind of a conversation topic that's front and center in the media, you know, that it is, that it's no longer, um, you know, implicit, that we're making the implicit explicit and putting further, uh, further intention uh, and resources behind it.
1: And like you said, it's no longer a nice thing to have, but something that is non-negotiable, essential, you know, built into the foundation of the institution that we have, which certainly it is not today. (laughs) We can say that. Um, if, If we've just been to the mountaintop and explored the vision element of this, let's now go back down into the base camp of the current moment and look at the roads that we have to get there. And my question for you is, if you were making a mind map of the empathy initiative, what would be the themes and the strands in the work that would stand out? What's the practical, let's do it part of this?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So there's really three areas in which we're concentrating. Yeah. Um, and that begins first and foremost with identifying new innovations. Um, so as we talked about, you know, fellows, not just limited to kind of the education space, um, but social entrepreneurs across different fields and issue areas who've tapped into really unique mechanisms for cultivating this skill set, for building up kind of a culture Um, in which, you know, cliches and stereotypes and everything else that inhibits empathy is out of the picture and empathy isn't able to thrive. And really identifying what does kind of an institution, what does a medical system, you know, that makes empathy part of its core actually look like. And from there, being able to pull back out um, kind of a set of key principles and practices, you know, that any person anywhere could take and advance in their own worlds. Um, that this is something that you know is a source of inspiration uh, and certainly a source of identifying. Okay, how do we how do we measure this? You know, how do we measure the impact? Unfortunately, all of our fellows, um, you know, spend spend hours, spend years of their lives really thinking through how do you how do you how do you measure what actually matters? You know, because if in this society we um, we value what we measure they figured out, um, how to measure what we value. Right. Um, and, and, or to measure what is valuable. So we're kind of pulling uh, all of those learnings out of our increasingly growing fellowship and constantly on the search for new ideas. So if you find one anywhere where you happen to be, um, please send them over
1: <laughs>
2: as we hunt for leading social entrepreneurs.
1: So um, innovation, second, yes, a second. You You're going to say second. The,
2: second. the second that we're working towards is um, actually figuring out, okay, so how do we work with schools? Um, you know, this isn't pretending by any stretch of the imagination that – this is that this is entirely new. There are schools, um, public, private, charter management organizations that have done this, that have been doing this, that have recognized that, hey, in the face of bullying crises, um, in the face of, you know, recognizing that kids coming to school with a lot on their plate, thinking about everything but classroom learning, maybe need to have their mental and emotional needs taken care of. So we're identifying who those model schools are, Uh, And similarly, how can we pull out kind of the tips, the practices uh, that showcase that this is doable, but more importantly, I think, lower the barrier that says, you know, this isn't, this is something that can start tomorrow, and it starts with kind of a change in our attitudes and what we take to be significant, and here are the outcomes that we see in these schools as a result of emphasizing empathy. And then the third piece, and this um, ties obviously back into the first two, is really looking at kind of this from a marketing and a media campaign standpoint. Mm-hmm. So we're gearing up to launch um, Start Empathy, uh, which is a global campaign that certainly headquartered within the U.S., um, but really focused on, okay, so how do we plug these examples, these practices, um, and these whys into the conversation, working with leading partners like Edutopia and Great Schools, um, you know, getting this out in conferences where teachers and parents are already paying attention and already asking a lot of these same questions and then working with kind of a global network of leading mavens and academics, um, journalists, people who kind of have their their fingers on the pulse point um, of dialogue in our society and figuring out how do we plug in this set of stories so that over time we begin to kind of shift in terms of how we see the fundamental purpose of education and our roles within it.
1: So that's that's terrific. So innovations, schools, and really connecting all this work to a media campaign that disseminates this idea throughout the system, throughout the culture. Am I hearing that right? Correct. Yeah. So let's, if I could do just a little dive into some of the things you've mentioned, because they're so interesting to me. One is the approach, uh, looking at empathy as a skill rather than an attribute or a concept, but as something that you can practice. Could you talk a little bit about that and maybe also mention what do we know about now about measuring that ability and why is that important?
2: Yeah, um, absolutely. Well, so I think when you think of empathy, you know, it's, it's kind of the famous Supreme Court line, I know it when I see it. (laughs) Um, And so I think what we're trying to do is to to really get a little more clarity around that. Um, And we recognize, you know, that empathy is kind of similar in a sense to the weather, right? The weather itself doesn't exist, but the weather is the combination of climate patterns and wind conditions and temperature and everything that falls under that. So when we look at empathy, what we're really talking about are all of the skills that, um, you know, kind of form the composite picture that is empathy, that becomes the ability to stand, um, you know, accurately in someone else's shoes to take on a new perspective. So those skills include everything from exactly that the ability to take on multiple perspectives, you know, which particularly when you're talking about early childhood work is critical. You know, it's getting kids to recognize that what goes on in their head isn't necessarily what goes on in another. And that fortunately, um through our fellows we found that there are extremely powerful mechanisms for developing that ability, um, you know, to and and a recognition that their actions can hurt other people Mm -hmm. um, as well as help. And so helping kids kind of overcome, you know, what we often think of with, with the bystander effect. You know, and something that obviously affects us all. So all of these things are, are um, skills that can be cultivated in a really intentional way, but it goes beyond that. It is that ability to solve a problem. You know, we're not just looking for a world of more problem solvers, we're looking for a world of better problem solvers and people who um, you know, have the ability to listen, not just to kind of uh, articulate their own vision in the world, that they're really really building up um, kind of powerful coalitions, and and able to reflect back to those individuals, um, you know, their kind of place in the bigger whole, you know, and that can sound a little bit elevated. I know um, if you're talking about leading social entrepreneurs and how exactly does that play out on a playground? But what we find is that that's exactly where it plays out. That's exactly where you learn these things is when you're playing, when you're building a team, when you're, you know, for the first time in your life, a part of something bigger than yourself. Um, And how do you, and, and kids, you know, get this innately. They have that kind of imaginative quality. So that's part of where we really practice this. And it, it certainly is the ability to resolve conflict effectively. It's certainly the ability to stand up when you see, you know, a person in distress uh, and to do something about that and to have kind of the situational awareness, um, you know, that's required for actually identifying, okay, I understand what's happening in the situation. I understand that no one else is going to intervene here, and so that has to be my role. And what's exciting about, you know, the work that we're finding from from our fellows is that that is actually something that can be developed, um, you know, and and measured, ultimately. But I think also – no, go ahead.
1: I was just going to say one of the things that strikes me about this whole – task of defining empathy and thinking about the components and it's actually extremely complex as you've just listening to you all the things that would go into it all the social and emotional intelligences and capacities there's clearly some cognitive elements to this that are essential but then there's also some heart stuff you know you can understand how someone else may be experiencing the world but to develop the skill of caring about that person, and to think of that as a skill, I think is a wonderful way of framing the task that we have. So I just wanted to offer that idea.
2: Wonder- yeah, I, I go think ahead. When we, when we think about empathy, what we're really talking about is applied empathy. And applied empathy, you know, because you're exactly right. It's it's no good if you look at the bully, um, you know, in the classroom and don't do anything. It's also no good if we just completely um, victimize the bully you know or you know turn all of our attention into um punishment you know it's how it's how do we use that ability to understand what's driving um you know the actions both from the bully's perspective as well as from you know the person who's being bullied uh, and to be able to effectively intervene so that that situation stops happening and that both um you know both persons in that situation ultimately themselves develop empathy um, and, you know, we've got – so we're working with a number of fellows, um, you know, on figuring out what are kind of this, the equivalent assessments that can be used for uh, for an individual teacher. You know, how do we measure this in individuals, you know, without going down the path of, you know, adding yet another um, another test in our already over-tested system? Right. Um <laughs> So we're certainly sensitive to all of that, but I do think that the exciting thing is you can identify, you know, the kind of key strengths, the key attributes, um, you know, that go into empathy. And in, in so doing, you can identify, okay, these are my strengths and these are my weaknesses and these are the things that I want to work on. Maybe I, um, you know, I'm really, really good at, um, at seeking out and valuing my student's point of view or my children's point of view. Maybe I'm less good at kind of um, actually being able to give specific kind of feedback to them, you know, and, and really maybe I'm less kind of talented at the communication element of this. So there are different ways that you can um, identify where, where kind of you're excelling and, and where you're not and using that as a tool for learning. And then I think overall we're working with fellows to understand, okay, so then, from an institutional level, what can we expect to see once empathy is made kind of in the forefront and the center, and and that kind of goes into an increase in good stuff and a decrease in bad stuff, um, and you know we can kind of get into that further. But it's it, what's exciting to see, I think, is that for too long. Um, we said, you know, empathy is that nice thing that everybody gets is important, but we don't know how to measure it. So we're not going to pay attention to it. And I think the reality is we do actually know how to measure it. Um, and it is time that we pay attention to it.
1: Terrific.
0: This Innovate series features dialogue with some of the most influential advocates for changing our world. From the CEOs and founders of major nonprofits to the directors of cultural and academic institutions, Innovate demonstrates the vital role of empathy as an agent for that change. Innovate and Aspire are produced in partnership with Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal, and presented by Art Street Press and the Public Radio Exchange. We now return to our Ingolve interview with David Castro and Ashoka team member Langen Flowers.
1: One of the things I'd like you to talk about, I've I've heard people talk about this, is the idea of embedding empathy skills across the curriculum. So it's not simply like, okay, now you're going to go do an empathy exercise as part of your day, and then we'll forget about that. But that empathy becomes woven into really the culture of a school and everything they do. Can you talk about a little bit about that?
2: Sure. Um, and I think we've got lots of examples um, you know, from certainly across the fellowship, but also just extraordinary schools that are doing this very, very well right now. Um, so when we talk about embedding empathy across the curriculum, right, we recognize that, you know, every teacher, every principal's day is extremely packed at the moment. So the idea of adding yet another class can oftentimes be too big of a burden. And I think what's exciting about this work is that you don't have to start there. You know, certainly um, we're not, you know, I think uh, we've seen amazing examples through groups like um, Roots of Empathy and Peace First, where if you spend focused time on building up a student's Peacemaking skills, um, rather than you know legislating anti-bullying or punishing them when you see this, that they become the first interventionist. You know they they really can practice these skills in an extremely powerful way. But Eric Dawson, the Peace First founder, recognized that it's not just about what we do in that classroom in a Peace First setting, because what we want to what we want to be able to prove and what we want to be able to cultivate here is kids' ability to carry on those skills far beyond that one hour a week um, between, you know, pre-K and their uh, graduation day. And so in addition to that, in addition to that, how do we look at a culture where the rituals reflect empathy, where, um, you know, this is about how students are greeted at the door, where it's about how teachers interact with one another, where the principal is taking the time to listen to his or her teachers, where all of these kind of mechanisms are in place to ensure that empathy isn't, again, just something that's kind of dismissed and considered nice, you know, or something that, yeah, 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 we're focusing on it, but really we're not. Um, That this is kind of a lived behavior. So that's one part of it. And then I think Um, The other kind of key piece to this work is that empathy can be brought into any classroom setting. It can be brought into any subject matter. You know, one of the key mechanisms for developing empathy is around storytelling and narrative, you know, and the ability Uh, the first time that a lot of kids, you know, begin to kind of imagine what it is to be another is through stories and bedtime. Um, So how do you use literature to not simply say, this is what happened, but let's really understand what's going on with this character. Why is this happening? Why do you think, what do you think this character felt like at the time? And then, you know, taking the kind of next step, what is the time in which you felt that way? So you've got that example in um, in literature, but I think it's exciting because we've seen, you know, um, really powerful mechanisms for doing this in math class and every other matter. So uh, it certainly doesn't have to be isolated to a few minutes a
1: day. That would be terrific. And I, I think it would be a wonderful discussion to talk about how we can inject empathy into math that would be terrific i would love to uh...
2: (laughs) i I can tell you i could have used many more empathetic experiences growing up
1: It's probably the hardest one for us to imagine, but I'm sure it can be done. I I do totally resonate with what you said about narrative and stories. I think that is a natural point to uh, (laughs) reinforce some of these uh, skills that allow you to see the world through somebody else's eyes. And just totally resonating with what you're saying about how culture, the small interactions say so much. I've actually been launching a charter school over the last year uh, here as part of our work in Pennsylvania, and the culture is something that we think and talk about all day long because so much of what kids learn is comes from that informal learning and if you if you're saying one thing but doing something else kids recognize it immediately and and you've lost the opportunity uh, for that learning and and maybe even created a skeptic so it's something that we all have to really pay attention to and yet it really is a profound leverage point that we have Culture is such a powerful thing, and I I was really impressed in looking at some of what Ashoka is thinking about in this, about thinking about the culture, thinking, of course, as as you start to think about impacting the school across the curriculum, you're really talking about making a cultural change. And then if you go beyond that and you start talking, as I know you are, about ecosystem, what are some of the ways that we have to uh, impact the culture uh, at large uh, as we think about empathy?
2: Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. Um, well, and, you know, culture and its importance in our education system is something that we've been talking about, you know, since the early days of John Dewey more than a hundred years ago, you know, and that was one of the kind of key points that he emphasized. So this isn't, you know, this, this isn't a shocking new discovery that, hey, culture matters, but maybe what is a little bit, um, new for some, for some people is the fact that, you know, there are kind of concrete steps that you can take to influence your culture and to establish, hey, this is who we are and hey, this is who we're not. Right. Um, so yeah, as far as kind of key mechanisms for doing that, um, I would turn to just a couple of examples of really extraordinary um, places that have kind of gotten it right. Um, just a couple of weeks ago, I was at Big Picture Learning um, and their flagship school, The Met in Providence, Rhode Island. And this is a place where you can, you can literally feel empathy the moment that you walk into the door. Um, you know, students are... And from the very first day, students are respected, um, and they know that. And their their kind of role is to respect one another. Um, so as you kind of come into this institution, um, you you find that you know students are kind of there is no there is no fighting in a hallway kind of thing, and and the typical um, stereotypes that accompany um, you know what it is to walk into a chaotic. Um, school system. It's, you know, everyone is kind of interacting, they're working on projects independently, um, but they're, you know, also working hand in hand with their advisors, which is um, their term for the role of the teacher. And the teacher is more than just a teacher in kind of the traditional sense. The teacher is playing the role of mentor and friend And confidant and Mm -hmm. person who is kind of pushing them to be more and I think when you look at kind of the research for years and years and years it's said that um when you can kind of match a child with a caring adult you know and someone outside the family that child has infinitely more uh, of a likelihood of actually achieving success if they're coming out of really really hard circumstances than someone without that adult you know so it's so that's part of how you build a culture it's really in kind of the relationships um, that you're establishing and giving teachers the permission and the time to listen to their students, to understand, okay, what are your passions here? But then part of it is also kind of the rituals, um, you know, that we develop around the school and an institution. What is it that we're celebrating? What are the stories that we're telling each other? Um, what are our moments for coming together? Um, and you can find that empathy is something, um, you know, when, when you actually spend the time thinking about it, it's not that hard to develop. It's not that hard um, you know, to say we're going to really take a step into somebody else's shoes here and we're going to really understand, um, you know, this problem, this issue from their perspective. Um, so it's it's been exciting to see so many amazing examples where this is really done right.
1: Interesting. Interesting. I think that one of the things I wanted to ask you specifically about what happens in schools, and let me see if I can frame the question well. There are so many institutions nowadays and Uh, particularly academic institutions, that in the wake of all these efforts at assessment of uh, learning that are really powerful and very uh, difficult to achieve and with great consequences to the institutional success or failure, this process has caused within the school to create a kind of vision of working with children that that the children are in a process mm-hmm. and that the process has to achieve some measurable goals. And if the process doesn't get there, it's a failure. And, Uh, What I hear you talking about in the way that we want to see empathy evolve in schools, that there's really a different vision of how the institution relates to the child or young person that is part of the environment. You hear it in the idea of engagement, in the idea of relationships, in the idea of community. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I do think uh, that is something that is out there. And that is attention. I think people recognize that culture really matters in school. But the question is, what kind of culture? And they're not all equal. I mean, in some cases, we know that in inner city environments, for example, we know that some cultures are extremely chaotic. But even in some schools that are performing and achieving academically, we may be losing something in the social and emotional learning. Can can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, well, and and I think um, we've seen uh, over the last, you know, few years, decades, as I am just beginning to kind of immerse myself in the history of the American education system, um, but we've certainly seen this rise in a a focus on back to basics, you know, and that came from a really good place as far as, um, you know, let's stop having excuses for ourselves um, for why, you know, too many American kids are failing, and dropping out? And how do we focus on the achievement gap? How do we focus on giving kids what they need to succeed? But I think where where that conversation, um, you know, didn't go far enough is to really understand, okay, this has to be more than just handholding and feeding, um, you know, children information that they're going to forget after they've taken this standardized test and, you know, are and finally for the first time in their lives pass something, you know, that's great. But what is the knowledge that's actually going to influence their trajectory and their ability to be successful in the world? Um, You know, and how do we get away from this idea that it has to be all about handholding and spoon feeding and cutting out, you know, every bit of kind of arts curriculum and recreation and play Um, Because we simply don't have time for it, you know, because we have to get, we have to improve these academic outcomes. Um, When, I think when you look at, you know, the example of Jill Violet in Playworks, um, who's, you know, building the movement for play, but she brings in trained coaches, um, you know, who are equipping these kids with the ability to solve their own conflicts. She's equipping kids with the ability to get out there and get a little energy out, um, you know, and to have fun and finds that actually when they return to the classroom, they're infinitely more likely to be engaged in that subject matter. And so it's not just kind of a, an either or, um, you know, or if we if we focus on empathy, if we focus on more of kind of that culture um, and the learning that takes place outside of your stereotypical One person in front of the classroom, the educational environment. um, That's where real learning happens, and that's and that feeds the system um, in such powerful ways. You know, to 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 help kids actually develop, um, you know, the staying power, but also you know the ability to not be worried about the bully down the hallway um, when they're actually learning. You know, the ability to for so many of these kids. Um, in our education system, they simply, they know that they've become cogs in a machine. They know that they are just one teeny tiny part of a process that actually isn't anything about them. So part of this is about shifting that. Part of this is about giving giving ourselves the ability to listen to kids so that kids can develop the ability to listen to others. Um, and I think empathy really starts with empathy for self.
1: So there's two things here that are really critical, I think. One is that we're, one of the shifts is that social and emotional learning, empathy learning becomes valued as an outcome of equal importance to these cognitive outcomes involving mastering writing and reading and math. The other element of this that I hear, and it's interesting for listeners, we do have an interview up. When this goes up, there will be an interview up with Jill uh, Violet, and she talks in, at great length about how their rigorous scientific study of how they develop empathy in play shows that it does, in fact, have an extremely positive outcome on all those other cognitive things that we're used to measuring, you know, math, reading, all that, so that, um, as you said, it's a false choice. We can do both things. They reinforce each other. This has synergy with the other kinds of, quote unquote, hard, hard skills and cognitive abilities that uh, we're trying to measure.
2: Yeah, Um, you know, so I think, I think you're exactly right. You know, when we talk about this, it, we are talking about two things. Yes, we're talking about improving the ability of teachers to teach and students to learn. And that, you know, should not be dismissed easily. However, you know, what we're really talking about is why learn? what are we learning for, you know, right. and why teach and bringing the kind of human back into an education system that has fought pretty hard for the last few years to take it out.
1: Right. Um, Which and, is why it's, think, yeah, why it's important to say that because on the one hand, I, I'm sort of disturbed. Like if someone did a scientific study and, 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 we learned that teaching people empathy doesn't necessarily improve their other cognitive skills like math and reading and writing, I would still want to teach them empathy anyway. <laughs> right. So, so, but it turns out that that in fact all these things are related, which which does make sense. I mean, ab- absolutely does make sense.
2: And you know, when it when a teacher is shown the same empathy that a student is shown, that teacher is more likely to to be to come to their job kind of fully committed. You know, I think we also have to stop thinking about. Um, you know, students as the sole end users and really respect, um, you know, every person in the room um, for the incredibly difficult jobs that they're doing, you know, and recognizing that um, this is, you know, again, we have created kind of a culture um, institutionally and in terms of kind of the standards and accountability measures, um, you know, in place that actually weakens teachers' ability to do their job effectively. You know, accountability is a great thing, but how do we begin to really celebrate their ability to actively listen and to, you know, create a set of kind of measures um, that inspire them to come to job, to their job, you know, uh, feeling good, looking good and ready to like and ready to really listen to their students and, and um, you know, to facilitate the learning process? How do we get away from, you know, teachers just standing in front of a room and answering questions rather than
1: asking questions? exactly and when we think about the fact that schools are really the first place that children go beyond the family to discover that world out there and that so that really underscores the the central importance of that experience to their development and to their understanding of what it means to be part of society so if it's a good experience and it does these things you're off to a great start and if it doesn't then you've got some really got some work to do or you're you're behind where we need to be so um, but
2: but there's a way to get better. That's the good news.
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. We're coming to the end of our time and what I would like to do is t- two final questions. One is if you can mention a few names of fellows, we know that by mentioning a few we're not leaving out the others, but also so people whose work we may want to investigate and, and for those who are listening to the whole series of these, expect to see these people come up with interviews in, in the podcast. And, and then secondarily, where can we go? Can you give us the Ashoka Empathy URL so that people can go and really do some exploring on their own if they're intrigued after listening to this?
2: Sure, sure. Um, so the first, I can give you a few examples. And again, we've got hundreds of these. Um, right. So this is by, by no means um and kind of the, the be all end all. Um, but a few organizations, certainly in the U.S. and, and those that we're working particularly closely with, um, you've spoken with Jill and Playworks and um, Mary Gordon and Roots of Empathy, who I think was one of the first people to really put kind of empathy on the map. Right. Um, Eric Dawson, I, who I mentioned earlier, um, and his work through Peace First. Um, Eric's now in the process of launching uh, the National um, Peace First Prize or the International Peace First Prize, which is basically um, the Nobel Peace Prize for youth. You know, and how do we change um, kind of our stereotyped image of kids as being the violent offenders? Um, you know, and really celebrate students as peacemakers. You know, and change what we what we think of um, when we think of you know the role of who is and who is not kind of protecting our hallways. You know, it may not be um, the, the, the police officer that they've hired. Maybe it's the kid, um, you know, who stands up and how do we really celebrate that story? Um, and then uh, Molly Barker, a woman uh, who runs Girls on the Run and another Ashoka fellow, um, really recognized that uh, kids, that actually part of the breakdown for empathy happens, especially for girls, um, between the third and fifth grades um, you, and as they kind of enter middle school um, and get into you know, a lot of the catty talk um, and insecurities and emotional turmoil that all of us can fondly remember from our middle school days, that that's where a breakdown happens. And so um, Molly has built Girls on the Run um, as a mechanism of really building kind of students' ability um, first and foremost to believe in themselves um, and to, to rebuild that kind of sense of confidence and self-worth, um, because so often, you know, a breakdown in one's personal sense of confidence and self-worth is actually enacted, um, you know, on the playground in a very defensive way, you know, that you're taking this out on somebody else. So how do we build um, teams of, of young girls who, um, you know, through the exercises that they're developing and the service projects that they're running, um, are having the chance to really see, kind of under the surface, um, both of, you know, their own kind of hearts and minds, but also those of uh, the other girls in the room and uh, society at large, you know, through the through the change-making projects that they're working on. So it's a really extraordinary example. Um, and then we see fellows, you know, even um, there's a woman named Sharon Terry, who runs the Genetic Alliance. Uh, and this is not, you know, your first kind of assumption of what an, a model of empathy would look like. But what Sharon realized was that she had to go out and build really powerful coalitions, um, you know, of parents groups, um, you know, and Sharon is tackling diseases, um, the kind of diseases that affect only a small population, um, percentage of the population. And so she's bringing together, um, you know, what are are oftentimes teeny tiny small family foundations, um, and organizations that have kind of fought tooth and nail for every dollar that they can get, um, you know, and every kind of piece of the very, of the shrinking pie. Right. um, to focus on diseases that, um, you know, that very few people are kind of paying attention to on the grander scale. So how do we build a coalition that brings together all of those voices, um, and is fighting with one voice, you know, and getting, um, increasing, you know, our access to a common biobank and all of that work, um, goes into working with researchers, um, and with, funders and foundations and different groups and so she's recognized that actually we have to all have empathy for each other in this system and she's developed a number of really powerful mechanisms um, for establishing a different kind of culture across these organizations and a different kind of set of incentive systems so that each one of those players and stakeholders um, is really supporting one another. We've got examples like Andreas Heinecke, who's a fellow based in Germany, And runs a group called Dialogue Social Enterprises. And Dialogue Social Enterprises began with um, Dialogue in the Dark, which is um, for two hours, uh, anyone off the street walks into an immersive experience and is thrust 100% into the dark. Um, And they are led for the course of that period by the blind. So what happens? Um, and this is something that's worked for um, you know they bring in business groups as um, part of their professional development training and leadership training. They bring in student groups and they do certainly bring in people off the streets. Um, but in the course of that process, it totally changes what you think of uh, what you think of when you think of the words disabled and able. Right. Um, right. Because for the first time in your life, you are the disabled person and the person that you've always judged to be disabled. Um, and in need of help somehow is absolutely critical to kind of your survival, you know, and your ability to thrive. Um, and that, that experience, um, I think what we find with empathy fellows is that, and, and I think Andreas's work, um, really highlights this empathy has to be experienced. This isn't just a cognitive sort of, um, understanding that, Hey, empathy matters. It, it is something that has to be lived and that when you can create that kind of environment, um, you know, that offers people that chance to, to breathe this and to really understand it on a very deep level, then it is something that they carry forward.
1: Terrific. God, those are great examples. And, you you know, I'm I'm making a list of all the people I got to (laughs) talk (laughs) to. That's terrific. Um, Where would we go if we wanted to go on the, on the internet uh, at Ashoka's website? Can you tell us what the web URL is?
2: Yeah, so um, right now you can go to empathy.ashoka.org.
1: That's Um, easy. That's easy. Simple
2: (laughs) enough, right? And then soon we're actually in the process of launching um, a website for Start Empathy. So check out empathy.ashoka.org, and we will redirect you um, to that website as soon as it comes online, um, which should look like sometime mid, mid to late April. Um, in concert with uh, a new, newly launched documentary called Bully, uh, which is about to hit screens near you. And then finally, I'll say um, for any listener who hears this um, before March 30th, Um, we're running a a competition on changemakers.com and we really want this to be, um, you know, this isn't just kind of changing, you know, I've talked a lot about kind of the role of the media and the stories that we tell and the stories that we tell one another, but we want to create a platform, um, you know, that facilitates the doing of empathy and, uh, changemakers is our starting point for that. Um, we're launching a competition right now, uh, with $110,000 in prize funding, For any idea, whether it's owned by a parent, an educator, a school, a student, um, an education organization or innovator, it doesn't matter. Uh, We're looking for ideas for cultivating empathy in schools Um, and, you know, with specific prizes around bullying and ed tech. Um, and play, and all sorts of really exciting things. So you can check out changemakers.com slash empathy to go on and learn more and to figure out beyond kind of the duration of the
1: competition how you can tangibly get involved. And that's going to be a place for somebody who's turned on who says, I want to do something. They're going to be able to go there and really figure out how to get engaged.
2: We're in the process of making it, and um, so whatever – yeah, absolutely. So whatever kind of needs um, that person feels, you can also email us those desires um, to empathy at Ashoka.org. We would be more more than happy to build
1: this together. Terrific. Well, it's very clear to me that this conversation is only just beginning. There's going to be more to come, and I'm sure we'll come back in a few months and do an update. But thank you so much, Lennon, for joining us today. It's been a tremendous pleasure.
2: Great. Wonderful talking with you, David. Thanks, everybody.
0: Thank you for joining us today. Our library of interviews and a range of further resources may be found at archstreetpress.org or prx.org.